Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Friends, thanks for joining us today for another edition of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. And I'm going to just cut to the chase and say that this podcast has probably been the one getting ready for it that has humbled me and beat me up a little bit more than any other one I've done. Uh, I've got... Justin Whitmore early on, he wrote a book that actually uh, a woman I know who moved to Florida, her and her husband, he's a pastor called The Common Rule, which did very well. And uh, he's got a new book out called The Habits of the Household. And his team was gracious and sent me a copy, or so I thought they were gracious. I think what they were really doing was knowing I needed thumped a little bit. And so I got thumped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Justin, thanks. Do you have a boxing ring anywhere close by? Or is that, is that what you do to everybody or? No, no, no. What an honor. That's a great way to be introduced. Glad to give you a thumping. Hopefully yeah. It was gracious. <laughs> well, in, in my men's ministry, I, so I do a ministry called the gathering in the Miami Valley. And we talk about, we have a new promotion coming out for our um, fundraising and we're calling it corner men. And it's kind of a, a Rocky Balboa esque, what is it like to have people in your corner and cheer you on? And uh, so we just filmed some video in a boxing ring. And I feel like uh, you put me in a boxing ring, but you didn't give me any gloves. But there was grace at the end. You say that in your book. Love it. Love it. Grace and you know, love got, are the theme. I've got four boys now. So um, one thing that, first of all, boxing happens a lot around our house. And, and second of all, one of the things that I found myself saying all the time is, hard things make us stronger hard things sanctify us hard things make us better so maybe i'm just accustomed now to the, th the thumping is a good thing yeah yeah well i'll take it i need it so hey before we jump into the book usually the book only fits in if i have an author into some of the conversation but i feel like with yeah. this there's so much I told Devin, who you work with on your on your team for harper that we're probably gonna spend most of the time in the book but give us a little background give us the, like the three minute testimony i know some of your story and business and being successful that way and kind of the come to jesus meeting jesus yeah. and then also just professionally what not that way sure i kind of put that in two parts one i grew up with a really really strong family and a mom and dad who walked with jesus six kids in our family so i have a lot of childhood that i look back on in my implicit memory as the psychologists say <laughs> and it's just really positive now i got to a point in late high school, early college, where while I followed Jesus with my head, you know, I never really questioned my faith. I certainly questioned whether I wanted to be obedient to him. Mm. And so a big part of my testimony is winding up abusing alcohol, abusing relationships with women and finding myself at a real low point in college, at which low point I realized I did not like who I was becoming. Mm. Who do I actually want to become? And I thought about my dad. Wow. And so a first part of my big testimony and really deciding to follow Jesus was kind of like Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. I, I knew that I was going to bad places and I wanted to follow Christ. I didn't know how. So I looked at how my dad followed Jesus. And I think, you know, as I write about parenting this book, that's still with me that, you know, my parents gave me not only the theology of Christianity, but the example of it. So that's a big, 
huge testimony in my life. From there, I went on to be a missionary in China. And funny, the second half of my testimony is kind of like my second thumping, if you will. And that was after being a missionary in China for almost five years, I felt called to come home and to the States and work missionally within law and business. And that was a, that's, you know, we can unpack more of that story if you want. That was a big calling in my life. I felt like the Lord moved me there. And yet in that call, I realized I ran headlong into law and business with all the fervor of the man on a call. And I just adopted all the habits and practices of, you know, high speed, top law school, young lawyer, which led me to a horrible anxiety crash and a fallout a couple years later. At which point I had to realize, wait, I'm doing this again. I'm following Jesus in my head, mm. but not in my habit. My, you know, my, my head looks like a man on a call, but my habits look like I'm wildly worshiping success and busyness and ambition and all these things. And that was my big second, I think, conviction moment in my walk with Jesus, where I realized that if I'm really going to follow him, my head and my habit need to be aligned so that my heart can actually follow him. And that's what led me to start thinking about habits. So that's my uh, short version of the well, testimony. Well, you referenced, and by the way, you said 1 Corinthians 11, 1. That is a passage for me that I could do testimony after testimony after testimony. Guys in the gathering hear me allude to that passage a lot because years ago I thought that'll never be me. I can't apply that to me and own it. And then several years ago, God allowed me to own it and say, hey, yeah, you're mm. not following me. You're following my example and I am pursuing Jesus, and let's go do this thing together. But you talked about you can unpack it more, so unpack it more. Yeah, let me unpack it more, because this is what set me on to thinking about habits as a spiritually formative matter. Every other time that I thought about habits, I thought, you know, type A, productivity, this is what some people like. This Not everybody needs to think about habits. I now see habits as fundamental hmm. to your spiritual formation. Here's why. When I, when I was going in law school, you know, full steam ahead, man on a call. I did not think about it, but I assimilated to all the usual practices of law school students, always staying up later, always waking up earlier, always adding more to my schedule, answering every beep, ring, ding, or alert on my phone. This is, no- this is normal for most people. Most people listen to this and like, yeah, I do that. Yeah, the normal course of life in modern America is not neutral. I did not realize that, okay? So I got into a place where the house of my life was decorated with all this Christian content of mm. calling. And I meant it sincerely. Those paintings hanging on the wall were really sincere. I loved them. But the architecture of my life, the studs in the walls, these habits were built just like everybody else's. Mm. And that house collapses as mine did. So I had a point my first year of lawyering where I started having inexplicable anxiety, insomnia, panic attacks. I mean, severe stuff that led me to a couple months into this needing either pills or alcohol to fall asleep. I wasn't an alcoholic as some people think of it, you know, drinking through my day. And I wasn't abusing pills like some people thinking of it, stealing and, you know, just guzzling them. But I was relying on them to calm down in the evening, which was a huge sign for me because I suddenly realized, how did the missionary become converted? Mm. So in in short order, by the way, how, how did the missionary to law and business become converted to the nervous medicating lawyer so quickly. That was that question gripped me for really a couple years. But as I started to figure out was that I, like many people do, had become converted by habit. By assimilating to a way of life, I began to worship the idols of that way of life. And so that's what led me to the most important realization of the past decade of my life, which is 
when your head goes this way, but your habits go that way, mm. your heart is always going to follow the habit. So to be a real disciple, to, to really be discipled by Jesus, not be discipled by modern America, mm. you must align your habits to your head. You, you must think about how your head and your habits intertwine. And that's, I think, the, really the, the life of faith. So now I think a lot about where are the, my habits leading my heart. And I think about it in the home and at work. Well, let, let's lean into that. Justin, I think it's, it, do you think people yes, just yes. blow past that and see it and are aware of it? And they just say, well, I can't stop. I go, go, go. And like you said, you awaken to buzz this, buzz that, ring this, ring that. And you need medication of sorts to slow down. Or do you just think, you know, they, they just never recognize that kind of pace, that kind of rhythm that's clearly going to crash and burn or at least get really unhealthy. Yeah, I I think unfortunately the the human condition is that we normally don't wake up until the alarm goes off. It usually takes crisis to get people's attention. And I feel like I've devoted a lot of my life now in writing to pleading with people don't let it be a crisis like mine because I still bear the scars of that. It's not like it's just easy best life now living. I'm still in some ways haunted by that low that I hit. Would Lauren agree with that? Absolutely. Mm. I mean she is too. It was not easy for her when I started you know, we had two kids at the time, you know, and, and I was suddenly saying, I can, I can barely do my job. You know, I'm worried about keeping my job, paying back my student debt, much less can I be a father, a husband and friend, all these things that I wanted to be. So I would think of it like this. I went on a vacation with my family to the beach this summer. And one of the funniest things is I kept noticing my third son. He, he loves just to hang out in the water, wear a life jacket. So we'd be playing, sitting on the beach, and he would just start bobbing down the shoreline. He'd just ch chill in the water, mm. bob. And, you know, we look up, he's and gone. it feels like he's half a mile down the coast, and suddenly we like, oh, my gosh, let's go get him. Because currents exist. You know, you do nothing, and you go somewhere. That's right. And you suddenly have to wait. You know, he was fine. Don't worry. He's in a life jacket. I could see him. <laughs> Never lost him. But You but said you have one less kid now, his, right? One, some, one less kid? Yeah. I got plenty. So, you know. <laughs> at some point, you have to look up at life and realize that the cultural currents are taking you somewhere. Mm. If you just keep your head down, you're gone. Like you either need to wake up and say, I need to swim back to shore, or here's the reason I like this metaphor. You need a parent who loves you to say, oh my gosh, my child is drifting and go back and grab them. And I feel like that's what the Lord did for me. He actually used this crisis to say, wake up, you're drifting. You could go way down this culture with everybody else, or you could come back and you could, you could serve me. And that's when it, I just, the light went off for me then because of crisis. I said, oh my gosh, I'm living in a current. And the answer to your question, Jeff, is I feel like most people need a crisis mm. to wake them up to the cultural currents. I'm talking right now on this podcast to, to plead with you, don't, don't let it be a crisis. Look up right now, see the current you're in, mm. and, and start swimming against it. Wow. Amen to that. Yeah, we can unpack that. And I think we'll probably get into that some more. I think you do a great job in the book of talking about love and discipline. You talk about us as parents being parented by God. We're parenting our kids. I just found myself reading your book. It's kind of like the prodigal son. I think in the prodigal son, we've all probably looked at it through the older brother, younger brother, father, every viewpoint. And I think you had my mm -hmm. head kind of spinning the book. Like I'm seeing this from so many different angles. And I love how you brought it up at the beginning about your dad that maybe you never set out to be your dad, but then you're looking back. And so you kind of are the finished product in some ways, while we're never finished products of your book. So tell me why right now, Justin, you think your voice, your experience 
is so needed and why this book, you're, you're obviously praying, Harper Collins is praying, your wife's praying that it has impact. And then how yeah. does that work as far as, do you try to go into something like this and think of a laser focus? Like I want this to be read by parents with really young kids, or are you saying grandparents and it's broad? How do you kind of separate that out when you're thinking of who this book's for? Yeah, I think both of my books so far have come out of crisis. You know, here's how I messed up with my habits. And then the book, The Common Rule was born. And it was like, it took me a while to realize all of what I just said, I become my habits. Oh, wait, I become my ha habits. My kids become me. So the habits of the household have an enormous impact on my kids' spiritual formation. That in the trenches realization of I'm doing this now, my kids at the time of this recording are aged three to nine right? I, I got four young boys. I feel like I'm in the thick of it. And the only thing that qualifies me to write about this is how badly I need the help. Mm. So I feel like my best authoring voice, my best sermon voice, my best friendship voice is more like an AA meeting than anything else. It's like, I struggle, you know, like you look in my home and you find a dad who, who's, who tends the current trends towards busyness, trends towards absence, trends towards anger at his children, trends towards frustration. I've got to work to be that present, gentle, loving father that Jesus is to me. I've got to work at that. And I need, you know, my instincts are all wrong in the house. My instincts are towards my kids mess up and I get mad at them or I yell at them. Uh, my instincts are, are to keep working rather than come home early and spend time with them. So and I use the word instincts on purpose because those are the things we do without thinking about it, right? So I need interruptive habits to say, no, Justin, be present now. No, Justin, speak gently now. No, Justin, you also are a child who needs the love of a heavenly father. So be loving towards your child right now when they're in the midst of their sin. Because remember when you had your sin and your father was patient with you? So that, that's like my failure is what qualifies me to speak about this stuff. And I, you know, obviously the best audience for my situation will be parents situated like me with young kids who are in the thick of it. But, you know, I was a pretty wayward teenager, like I just told you. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I have some good insights into, well, here's what your teen might be thinking. And by the way, here's what my parents did. I thought my parents did really well. So to the extent that I can speak to, to teens in the older years, it does come from the experience of, of being one. Um, but who knows, you know, maybe there'll be a part two habits of the household, the teenage years. Well, and, and I think to that point, I mean, I was amazed how much I thought about grandparents in this. I mean, I thought about my parents. Mm -hmm. I thought about my wife's two sets of grandparents who the, one of them will be here today to hang out with us from out of town. And I just thought it, it, the scope to me felt so wide. And it's interesting how that happens when you're probably writing to a more narrow audience. And in that loop, I want to know one of the things I essentially I wanted to ask about was, do you think your books and your heart and your desires Obviously, you mentioned Lauren in here a decent bit, but do you feel like they appeal or are more well-received by men or women or equally? Because I would think, depending on where you land, you know, hearing this as a man or as a woman, it might be drastically different. I don't know. Uh, that's a really good question. One of my favorite groups of people to talk to is, is men, like men's ministry stuff. We're on the same so page. So I though. feel like when we, we, yeah, when we get down to the nitty gritty and just talking about what it means to be strong as a man, strong in character, strong like Christ, and the vulnerability, the accountability, the friendship you need for that. A lot of that is woven into to my books. And so I feel like there's a lot there for dads. The, I think the reality of the publishing industry and social media is that you tend to get about two-thirds women reading. Mm -hmm. um, they tend to be bigger readers, tend to be bigger buyers of books, tend to be you know, a little bit more intentional with their listening and stuff. So 
I think by nature, a lot of moms tune in and even slightly more. I, I, I'm honored by that because I'm always actually worried like, oh, I'm a dad. They're not going to listen to me. <laughs> you no. know, they know better than that. But now, so we get a lot of, you know, moms putting this on their reading list, which I'm thankful for because, and this goes to your grandparent question too. One of the big things I talk about with habits all the time is that change does not happen alone. The most sticky habits are the communal habits. Amen. So when you're thinking about really changing the habits of your parenting, changing the ways that you're spiritually forming your children, your wife has got to be in on that discussion. And ideally, the grandparents who are seeing your kids a lot should be in on that discussion. So like the, one of my best readers, for example, I have people that say, this is my favorite kind of reader. They're like, just read your book. I'm now giving it to my ex-husband, our grandparents, and my brother-in-law, you know, all the people who are in my kid's life so that we can think about how to do this together. And I think that's, I think that's amazing. Well, let me, um, let me speak to that. So I was reading this for the last several days. I didn't get finished with it, which I'm bummed about, but I thought I'm going to cheat myself and really cheat you if I try to crank this out and not go slower. And I've had a number of reasons why yeah. that was the case, but I, about halfway through it, I sent a uh, note to one of my best friends who's our senior pastor. And I said, Hey, I'm reading this book. I know we're talking about family, all of 2022 and sermons. I'm going to encourage you to read it. He got it right away. And I said, can we go to dinner between now and the end of the year uh, as two couples? And I want to take back some territory. And I think you're probably going to be in the same boat. He goes, oh, I'm definitely mm -hmm. in the same boat. And I, I mm -hmm. like, again, you speak with some real truth, some real grit, but there's grace in there. And you said it earlier about swimming in the current. So talk about that with you and Lauren, you know, as a couple, as individuals, as parents, that you don't compartmentalize. It's very clear to me you don't. And I think there's some areas of life we need to. We talk about men compartmentalize, women really don't. But life just seems to be life. And you're constantly trying to learn and teach and navigate and do all this together. Because I think that's where I see a lot of people get in trouble is this is the sports world for our family. This is the church world for our family. This is the work world for yeah. our family. This is community. And you and Lauren just seem like it's all together. Elaborate on that for me, Justin. Wow. I love that you asked that. One of my favorite quotes ever is Abraham Kuyper's statement that there's not one square inch of the universe mm. over which Christ does not cry out mine. Amen. I love that quote. I think the more that I've learned about the currents in life, the more that I've realized that you can't really separate your life. One of the things that I long for in life is that sense of integrity. And people hear that and they think good character. That's part of it. What I'm talking about is the sense of being an integer, which is where the word comes from. An integer, mm. a number that is not divisible. It's, it's a whole thing. It's not a 1.5. There's not a fraction of yourself hanging out there. Seven's my favorite um, number if we'll apply that one. Okay, that's a good integer. That one has it some is. symbolic significance Amen. right there. But that that idea that I'm actually happiest, I'm most, you know, I'm most being being most sanctified. Um, I'm serving my kids the best. I'm the best worker when I'm living a whole life that is not compartmentalized. And this is like goes for obvious stuff like don't keep secrets. I mean, if if you're like thinking about all this stuff, but you're nursing a porn addiction or some mm. alcoholism habit or some, you know, tinkering with a possible affair over here, your life is like there's a fracture in it and it's gonna fall apart. And I I just think that I've the Lord has done enough work in my life where I look at that kind of temptation and I think, no, that there's no pleasure there. That's mm. horrible. So to the extent that I think there's a whole life of purpose, for me, 
honestly, it's that sort of Christian hedonism look at the world of like, no, that's the life of happiness. When you really think hard about what's going on in your household and how your meal times are informing your sports times or informing your family devotions or informing your moments of discipline, people can hear that and think, oh my gosh, this dude's out of control. That's a lot to think about. Good for him for being super type A. Like, no, 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 no. I do this stuff because I really believe what Jesus said, that his yoke is easy and his burden Mm. is light. I think that not doing anything and just living your default life means that necessarily that you are bearing an incredible burden of your fractured self. Sure. It is way easier to lean into Jesus' wholeness for you. I'm going to run with the integer line there and that thought. That is really good. That really helps me. My wife was a math teacher. I went to school to be a math teacher and didn't quite cut it. So she would sound better at math than her she is, but she's the one that qualified to teach, not me. So I, I love that analogy. Well, Justin, we're gonna we're gonna kind of change the the zone here a little bit and get in a different lane. We're gonna have some fun. I like to call these the rapid five, just kind of fast, quick hitting questions here. So what was your favorite childhood snack or cereal? Lucky charms. So good. Doesn't everybody it's still get, really good. Doesn't everybody go with some like fruity <laughs> sugary cereal? And that I, I think it's always yes. What is your favorite non-Justin Early book to most gift to other people? Ooh, that's so hard. Um, Right now, it might be Deep Work by Cal Newport. Have you read it? I've had it like three times from the library and never read it. So I'm glad you're saying it because I thought you were going to go somehow with Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, because we were kind of heading towards a Dane Ortland thing there, but... Deep work. Well, I'm putting it that's down. The, that's the one that's on my shelf right now, sitting in front of me as I work that I haven't read yet. So I need to read that. But deep work, it's just a it's a practical book for study and work. So it's not written from a Christian perspective, mm-hmm. it's, but it's just one of those things that's like, I think it's a virtue to learn how to concentrate yeah. in a world of absence. I think that's a big deal. And I honestly, I do think it's a Christian virtue. <laughs> you know, I need it. it Amen. Yeah. <laughs> I won't even go further because that'll beat me up. So you've already beat me up. Yeah, enough. and we're in the lightning round here, so we got to right. keep it short. <laughs> so your family's vacationing. I'm sure you relate to this question super well. You're making that pit stop on your trip. You're thinking, okay, we're going to stop about this time. And then one of your boys is like, I got to go to the bathroom, Dad. And it's like 10 minutes before you're going to stop, but you got to do it. And you're like, okay, now we're just we're close. We might as well just go ahead and make our lunch plans around this stop because you don't want to stop more than you have to. And you see on the exit sign, these three places, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, I'm hoping you've been out to the West Coast, or In-N-Out Burger. Oh. Where, where are you going? Wait, when you said Chick-fil-A, I was going to say 100% Chick-fil-A. Oh, but then In-N-Out you Burger. said In-N-Out Burger. Mm. Well, see, oh, well, I would do In-N-Out Burger because my kids haven't had that because I have. So, and, and by the way, my boys eat extraordinary amounts of food i mean it's just an (laughs) abusive budget line item and so they love burgers yeah and i would be like oh you're gonna love this you're absolutely gonna love this and they would it and not burgers incredible see another place i like like that but people don't know about it as much as backyard burger which is kind of i don't know if you have it in virginia i know southeast part of the country has it backyard burger i have not been to no i haven't heard of it yeah yeah I mean, Chick-fil-A. But, yeah, Chick-fil-A is like our everyday go-to. But yep. if I see In-N-Out Burger, you, you got me. I mean, I, I knew we thought alike here. That's that's the right answer, I think. So yeah. what is yeah. the movie, Justin? <laughs> and maybe this is thinking with you and your Lauren hat on or not. But what is your movie? Like every time it comes on, you're not expecting it. You stumble across it. You're like, we're staying for this one. <laughs> this one's kind of embarrassing. Moulin Rouge. 
<laughs> my wife just Moulin became Rouge. a fan of you guys. Have you seen it? I've seen it. My wife loves it. Okay. It's kind of a wild movie. It's a little bit weird. I love it because the central story is a prostitute falling in love. I mean, there's a lot of heavy oh, yeah. biblical themes going on here. And uh, the central song in it is Come What May, I Will Love You Until Your Dying Day. It's all about this guy romancing this girl out of her prostitution. And I think, oh my gosh, the, mes the message of the gospel is so weirdly but beautifully present in this movie. Sure. And it gets me every time. Well, usually we'll say more about an actress than an actor, like both men and women love him. I mean, who doesn't love Ewan McGregor? He's so great in that movie. And my oh wife, my gosh, he's incredible. She reined me in on that one. That was, that was a good one. So now here's the most important question I'll ask you maybe today. Who is your right. first celebrity crush? <laughs> That's embarrassing. Luckily, my wife knows uh, Natalie Portman. In, oh. uh, and I think in the, in, the star, in, the, in the Star Wars movies, the ones that weren't very good. Okay. You know, nonetheless, I'm like a teenager. I'm like, oh, wow. I like this girl. <laughs> I'm a little surprised no one has said her because she makes sense on many levels and she's got a very endearing smile, but no one's ever answered Natalie Portman to me. On she's that a very like high school crush kind of actor. And I, I mean that in a positive way. Yeah. So, yeah. See, I'm 52. If you're 52 years old, you have to say one of two people or both. You have to say Maureen McCormick, who is Marsha Brady, or you have to say, uh, oh, really, it's a both and Elizabeth Shue. What Wait, is, who's that one? I'm terrible. Karate Kid. She's was on the one season of Cobra oh, yeah, yeah, Kai. Yeah. Okay. Cocktail, okay. a whole bunch of stuff like that. So right. it's almost like you have. I mean, it's a wrong answer if you don't say one or one or both of those two people. So, well, Justin, we're going to move back onto some deeper stuff. Talk a little bit about you. You navigate this whole love and discipline thing so well, and you talk about it's the hardest thing we do as parents, hands down. You talk a lot about pausing and even. Maybe yeah. taking a break and walking away from your kids or, but then you make sure you have this discipline thing that fits whatever happens or whatever went wrong. And then really a lot of times taking that space and not separating, but coming together. Maybe it's a work project. Maybe it's something. So you get time with one of your, talk, elaborate on that and the importance of why that's where you go when there's discipline. I love talking about discipline because I think it's one of the areas where we blend as a parent and a child. So what I like to tell people is that parenting, particularly in moments of discipline, is not as much about being a parent of a child as it is about being a child of our true parent, Amen. the king. Because, you know, nowhere in discipline, <laughs> discipline makes us realize how much we need discipline. Mm -hmm. right? And that's where I'll start, right? So a minute ago, I talked about how our instincts are all wrong. Like zone in on that. When my kids act up and... Uh, particularly with my boys, it's rowdy, reambunctious. I mean, it's like someone getting hit or me getting hit. Anger just flares, you know, my instinct to protect another child or my instinct that I'm mad because I just took an elbow, you know, I just go to anger, like control this behavior or, or put it in a neutral realm. That's not just an all boy rowdy, rowdy family, just a, a toddler, you know, throwing a tantrum in the supermarket. I think I'm like most parents because my instinct is to anger and control in that moment. And I'm convicted by that because that's the exact opposite of what Jesus does for me mm. in the course of my discipline as discipleship. You know, the story of discipleship in the Bible or discipline is that God disciplines those he loves. And the point of that discipline is to bring them to love, which means he's not just pushing us away, controlling them so he can go on and do his other stuff. He's pulling us in and reconciling us. And so 
a lot of what I think about now as I've worked through this as a parent is what are the habits I can put in place to interrupt my problematic instincts towards anger and control and to invite mm. habits that will actually be of reconciliation and love. And you mentioned the two big ones for me. I write about a, a bunch in that chapter, but the two big ones for me are the habits of pause and habits of reconciliation. So pause, you know, everybody knows about a timeout. Most people don't think of it as for the parents. I'm, I'm like, think about hmm. the value of a timeout for you yeah. before you just go into that ring and start Exploding. punching <laughs> timeout, step back. And for me, this habit of pause is prayer does it. So as I'm running up the stairs to break up a fight, you know, probably the third one in 10 minutes, right? Mm. One of the things that I will do is remind myself in prayer. And I'm talking like a short off the cuff prayer. Like I'm not talking about kneeling on the stairs sanctimoniously and invoking, you know, 10 minutes of pleading to the Lord. Yeah. You got to go save a child, right? Somebody's fighting. You got to get up there. <laughs> so I'm talking about as I run up being like, Lord, remind me that I too am impatient with others or remind me that I too don't like other people to touch my stuff. And it helps me to think about I'm more like that child than not in that moment. So treat them with all the, the grace and truth that I want from Jesus and that he gives me. That's a huge one for me. So just, it's a way to start that discipline moment on the right foot. Another huge one is the ending moment mm. where I try to think of what's a small act of reconciliation that we can do to embody the reconciliation. Because likely if you're parenting well, hopefully you're getting to some moment where somebody's looked each other in the eye apologized and said, I forgive you. And, and those, and I talk about those habits, like those are important of confession, you know, forgiveness, that sort of stuff. But often it's that sort of, I'm sorry, I forgive you. Okay. Like that's, you know, it's just, everybody's still mad. And so I think about, you know, what's a liturgy of reconciliation for, for my boys, we call it the brother's hug. You know, I had um, that in there. I love the brother hug idea. I want to do that with everybody in my life now. So the brother's hug idea, and, and yeah, it's good for me too. The brother's hug idea is that they, they have to just hold each other and hug each other until they can both smile again. And usually like with little kids, that's the beauty of it. It's, it's easy. Once they're holding and hugging each other, they're kind of like, they're starting to tickle each other. They're laughing. Maybe they're wrestling again, but we do it too. You know, it's sort of like, for me, it's the, you know, I need to hug you until I r remind myself that I'd rather be with you than not. Mm. And so, or sometimes it's, with an older one, you know, it might be like, hey, let's go sit together. Let's go do this thing together. The point is, if I'm too mad to actually engage in some small mm. act of reconciliation, I can see that I haven't done my job yet. And if they're too hurt to come back and engage with me in reconciliation, I can see that I've probably been too harsh or haven't done the work of reconciliation. And so that small act of embodying reconciliation, whether it's a brother's hug or sitting on the same couch together or something else, those acts of reconciliation embody the truth of what we're trying to make true. And that's, I do just think that's huge, embodying it. So those are two, if, if I was saying parents take away these two habits, think about a habit of pause to pray before and think about a habit of acting out reconciliation after. Those really book in your moments of discipline with the message of the gospel. So you're speaking about some really hard stuff here. You're talking grace, truth, and love. The beauty of it is sometimes when you get hit, like I feel like I got hit in this book, things then don't become accessible. And it's so otherworldly, like I can't relate. And I think you make things so accessible, which I just absolutely love. So for time's sake, I'm gonna throw three quotes out from this book, pick one of them and roll with it and discuss it further. The greatest oh, like spiritual moments come in the normal moments of domestic life. Second one is we become our habits and our kids become us. 
Number three is the table is the center of gravity for relationships. Take one of those quotes and take it further. Uh, I'm definitely taking the third because I can actually do two of them in the third. Oh, boom. <laughs> I, I wanted to go with the first, that the, the greatest spiritual moment come in the normal domestic life. But nowhere do I see that more than at the table. So, Because my, my whole excitement about this topic is, yeah, I used to be a missionary, right? And And I'm talking to lots of people who are in full-time ministry or are tempted by it or go to church. And we think the greatest spiritual work is out there somewhere like overseas or out of the house or out of our ordinary jobs, certainly not in our ordinary moments of parenting. But I have come to see that there is no realm of more serious sanctification for you than in your household. Because that's where people annoy each other the most. Mm. That's where you struggle to love the most. Sanctification is becoming like Christ, which necessarily means becoming more lovable, um, more, more, more loving and lovable. And so the, the home is this great place of sanctification. And by the way, where do we train disciples in a more enduring manner than in the home, raising children, right? And so I think about this stuff and I'm like, this is incredible spiritual work. Where does it happen? Often at the table, like in other ordinary places of life. The habit of coming together for a family meal seems like a simple, ordinary habit. You know, it's hard because you got to plan groceries. You have to actually get home from work on time. You have to bring everybody to the table, turn off the devices. You got to do all Then you got to clean up. And by the way, if you got kids my age, you got to, you know, fight through all the complaints, the spills, the, hey, you're holding my hand too tight at the prayer time. Like dinner is just a wild mess. Mm. And if you've got teens, you know the same. Like, you know, oh, yeah. you, sometimes you're dragging them to the table. You're telling them, uh, you know, wait to leave for your sports practice, whatever. So we, we might like, why is it worth it? Well, because at the table, we find family actually becoming friends. Mm -hmm. Because at the table, the table is not about eating. Nearly so much as it's about communing through food, right? We, we find community at the table. I tell people the difference between um, roommates and family or roommates and friends is what? It's whether you eat together or not. People who regularly eat together are talking. They're sharing about their day. They're answering questions. They're communing. And I think that that ordinary work of just getting to the table is actually extraordinary spiritual work of learning how to live in community. And so that's the paradigm of family, but that's also the paradigm of discipleship. You know, eat and train these kids to love Jesus. Don't you feel like we were coming to a place in Christian culture where this is just becoming in such a good way so highlighted? I mean, I've been watching on Discovery Plus the Johnny Swim reality show. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I love Abner Ramirez and Amanda. But you could tell dinner and meals and traveling and being together, food in the same space is highly important. And then author, pastor, John Mark Comer, who's launching out to do a new mm -hmm. ministry called Practicing the Way, he really talks heavy and hard about community meals, that kind of space. And do you see that? Do you feel like we're, we're hitting a new, just people welcoming that into our culture right now as Christians? I, I do think, I do think so. And it's so easy to talk about where our culture is going wrong or where the church is getting it wrong. This is a nice, I'm glad you said that, Jeff. This is a nice place to say, I do see this. I see that in a lot of people. I haven't seen the Johnny Swim documentary, but love his music. Love John Mark Comer and the things that he talks about. A lot of synergies with his writings. And yes, I mean, I think especially in a world where food is often either fuel or fashion, you I mean, you're either looking at it as like, I just got to eat on the go to get where I need to be, or I, like, this is a beautiful artisanal meal and I'm going to Instagram it. Um, I do see a lot of places in the church where we're paving a different pattern and saying food is where 
we commune. I mean, it's where community is created. And if you're not, you know, what do you do with your enemies? You eat with them. Mm. What do you do with your friends? You eat with them. Like this is where love is created. And I, I love seeing that multiple places in the church, people are saying eating is more than eating. Mm -hmm. So, so do it, you know, run to it as a sacramental practice. Well, and in that, I love the differentiation you have. And I think Comer does the same thing. Talk about hospitality versus entertainment and how you prepare mm -hmm. and the simplicity of food versus trying to do some grandiose running around. It's very Mary and Martha-esque, I think, in many ways. So for time's sake, yeah, I, I got to close this off and I hate this, but we're gonna have to do a round two or you moved to Ohio and or I moved to Virginia. I don't know which, but we can't escape. <laughs> we can't escape screen time. So that's... I knew when I was going to read that chapter, I'm like, oh, this is going to be hard. I, I almost didn't want to read it. Yeah. You encourage in a book, you can skip around, but there is a reason maybe to read it start to finish. So this quote, you talk a lot in here about the fight is worth it. And you and Lauren went a little far and then you came back and you say this quote, which I have in all caps. If we do not teach them that vulnerable and embodied friendship is the heart of the good life, then screens will relentlessly nudge them toward connecting and liking their way to endemic loneliness. Yeah. If there was one current of America life that I would say, pay attention to, wake up, it would be this one. It would be the current of technology. I love technology. Using it right now, I will use it all day. I'm on screens a ton. So are my kids to some extent. However, like you said earlier, Jeff, it's on purpose. And I think one of the biggest things we got to do is wake up to the idea that if we don't form our screen time rhythms carefully, then our screen time rhythms will form us. And the problem is all the thousands of people on the other side of that screen who want to make money on our attention do not love us. They do not care what our life looks like in the end. They don't care if we're suffering from anxiety, depression, loneliness, and all these things because of screens. They don't care if we no longer know how to have a quiet time or meaningfully pray because we can't stop swiping. So the battle is for formation. We form our screen time or our screen time forms us. And just to be clear, I think you asked it this way, but just to be clear, I'm not just talking about kids here, right? Every parent knows, hey, we got to help like our kids learn this. And yes, one of the most important lessons you will teach your child while they're under your roof is how to use screens and how not to use them. And whether you do that well determines an enormous part of their life going forward. So take it seriously. But also, like, we all know this. It's worth saying, we all know this. What's the best way to teach anybody? Set an example, right? <laughs> Live it in front of them. I read some ridiculous, I think it was in the Atlantic or something, article about how some study came out saying, as it turns out, screen habits of kids are determined by screen habits of parents. Wow. You know, really needed a research study to, to, mm. to teach us that one. Like this is just sort of obvious stuff. So I talk to parents and say, pay attention to your rhythms, whether it's like scripture before phone rhythm in the morning to control the way that you're entering the day in your phone, maybe an hour with phone off sometime a day, maybe having a tech Sabbath. There's all sorts of important habits where you can start to put guardrails on your usage. And I encourage people to think the same about your kids' patterns. Don't think about limits as much as you think about rhythms. I think it's one of the most generous things you can do for your kids is tell them when they can expect to use screens and how. Mm -hmm. And then set the expectation that the other times are off time because it's like sugar. You're always going to be wondering, can I have more? Yeah. Can I do it now? But telling a kid, you know, we do Friday night movie night. 
you get your Tuesday afternoon iPad time. On Sunday or Saturday, you'll watch a movie with your friends or your cousins or whatever. I'm naming some of our rhythms, right? But they know on a t- typical Monday night, they're not going to, no, they cannot have the iPad. Like, it's just not an option because they need to do other beautiful things like build Legos with their brothers, go out and shoot their slingshot in the backyard, wrestle each other, figure out how to play outside of it. And I'll end with just this point. That's because when we do go to screens, we pick stuff really on purpose. Stories are incredibly important. They form us. That's why I'm worried about uncareful uses of screens. But when you do go to screens, pick great stories. You know, one that teaches them what virtues to follow, what, what good character is, what a human being is. There's a lot of things we can run to. But all that is predicated on just choosing on purpose. Well, and I think you said it so well in here. It's it's not about screens on any level, whether it's a phone, it's an iPad or whatever. They're not evil in and of themselves. Otherwise, we just say, end it, get rid of it, it's done. But it's really a yeah. matter of discerning and using wisdom. And I like, again, like you said earlier about community and doing that together, like we're going to try to do with this couple and say, how do we fight for this together? I tell my kids all the time, think about where you put your time and energy and attention. Does it love you back? And if it doesn't, I mean, you make a great case in the book, anything our kids are going to put in front of their face with a phone and a screen for the most part is wanting to profit. They're not looking to disciple them to and with Jesus. So Justin, I can't thank you enough. I am so grateful. I feel like I heard once that an author spends about two years on a book. If that's true in your case, you just invested about two years. Well, I'm getting there. Not quite two years because I haven't finished it, but thank you for your investment in me as a man, as a husband, as a father as a leader. And I'm, you know, I know we got some guys already going through this book in our ministry starting to uh, soon. And uh, man, I wish we were in the same community. I think you and I would be fast friends. And uh, I'm just praying Mm. that God really uses this book to the nth degree for his glory and to build the kingdom, because this is so important, no matter where we are, like some parents, grandparents, believers, non-believers, this, this could lead to where you're going here to some revival. I don't say that lightly. Oh, Jeff, thank you, man. Uh, Praise God. I I hope it's true, too. And I just appreciate your encouragement and the great questions. So fun to talk about this stuff. Uh, Thanks for for being on. It was very life-giving and challenging. You bet. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at GatheringMiamiValley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.